you've come to the right place if you're looking to create, launch, and scale a high-value online training program. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I'm the co-founder of Lifter LMS, the most powerful learning management system for WordPress. Stay to the end. I've got something special for you. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. My name's Chris Badgett, and I'm joined by a special guest, Adi Pinar. Uh, he's the founder of WooCommerce Conversio, is now working on a startup called Cogsy. But I want to bring Adi here in front of you, the education entrepreneurs and the WordPress professionals that support them, because Adi's awesome, but also he has this new book out called Life Profitability. Welcome to the show, Adi. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Thanks for a wonderful intro there. Um, by the way, I, I I always love it when people throw compliments at me. Like everyone in the WordPress space that knows me loves or knows that I love you know little compliments and you know a moment in in the spotlight. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, I'm a huge WooCommerce fan, so this is like I get to interview one of my heroes. I was thinking like <laughs> maybe four years ago, I was listening to you on a podcast while I was cross country skiing up in Canada with my family and. Uh, you were, you were talking about the origin of Woo themes and stuff. So it's just, it's fun because we often look up to the history of WooCommerce for our WordPress plugin business for cues, you know? So it's a, this is an honor. So thanks for coming. Um, you're, a, uh, you're an entrepreneur yourself, but you also, entrepreneurship is, you know, a lot of it is an inside job. And I was so excited when you sent me an early copy of your book because I'm similar to you, like I'm big picture, I'm integrated, like I can't, I don't fit in the box. Um, you know, things are, business is more than just business. People are more than just cogs in a machine, whether I'm building it or somebody else is building it. So you wrote this book and you challenged the, the entrepreneurial archetype. Could you speak to that? Like, there's a little bit of a, and just one more piece of context, like entrepreneurship's hard. Like there's, there is hustle involved, but there's also a lot of death and destruction along the way of, of like overdoing it. What, what, how are you challenging the entrepreneur archetype? Yeah, I think, you know, Chris, for me at least is, um, you know, I, I would classify myself as an ambitious individual, right? I think that ambition, that drive, that love of a challenge, my, my thirst for learning, all of those things is a big part of my makeup and is probably a big part of why I kind of gravitated to this entrepreneurial path, right? Because it gave me that space or framework at least to put those things to work. And I think like all of those things are great things. I like, I, um, I don't regret being that 80, for example, but I've also learned, um, you know, across, two successful businesses at least, and multiple kind of your failures in between and around those, is that, you know, when when we get stuck in the cliches, um, and when I say cliches, those ideas that get pumped out in the media about what it means to be an entrepreneur, this, whether it's some kind of hustle porn of, you have to do this kind of, you know, short-term, you know, short-term pain, long-term gain, or like you have to strive for unicorn status in your business or like all these, like I said, cliches, these, these mantras, these memes that go, gets thrown out. I find them to be very, very limiting. And if I take a simple example, like when I think about ambition, what makes sense is to me, 
generally is when you're so laser focused on something that increases your likelihood of achieving success for this thing that you're ambitious about. But being so laser focused as an entrepreneur, I definitely did. Like when I was so laser focused, like I forgot about these kind of peripheral things, these things that were in my periphery that I didn't realize what was going on. And for me, that meant true collateral damage along the way, right? Along the journey. Um, it meant accruing life costs for myself and those around me that I wasn't aware of because I was just, I was just so focused on growth at all costs. Like just do this entrepreneurial thing, just build this business, be successful. Um, and I think that's, you're putting that out there as a, Hey, I don't think, I don't think that's what it, you know, being an entrepreneur actually means. I, I think that's just the, the version that we've gotten onto because that's the only version of entrepreneurship that gets thrown at us on a day-to-day -day basis. That's, that's awesome. Um, I have to ask you a side question related to that. Are entrepreneurs, in your opinion, born like this personality type or are they made? And of course they can improve you know, and become more well-rounded, but is there such thing as an entrepreneurial personality type? And in your opinion, is it like not for everybody? Is there like a percentage of the population that's born with this kind of combination of ambition, opportunity seeking, just fixation, problem fixation and stuff like that? Or is this something every, anybody can do? I think it's a bit of both. Um, yeah. I think it probably comes more naturally to some people um, to the extent that I do think, I don't think you're born an entrepreneur um, or made an entrepreneur. I think there are probably some char you know, character traits that if you were able to do a true research study around the world, right, both for successful, highly successful and you know, entrepreneurs and all the kind of you know, failed entrepreneurs as well, or entrepreneurs that had failed businesses, um, I think is a much better term. <laughs> um, like if you did a, if you did a research study and you tried to abstract that into character traits, you'll probably find that there are certain things there that, you know, many entrepreneurs share, right? And they share, probably share some mix of those things, right? A list of you know, 20 character traits and most entrepreneurs have 12 of them, whatever the case is. I think, but as I said, I, I think the for me, the question is more like, does this come naturally to some people versus others? And I think the way that I've at least conducted my own life, when my life is easiest at best, right? Air quotes. It's when I'm doing things that are closer to my nature. It's when I'm doing things that where if I do this thing, it is actually energizing. It creates more energy versus kind of draining energy. And entrepreneurship, for example, building businesses, building teams, also in a very specific way, because I think there's subsets here, but doing those things, like I naturally gravitate to that. So I would actually propose like one of the things, and this is not to knock entrepreneurship, I think being an entrepreneur is a is a truly unique, exhilarating, rewarding experience. But I think for many people, they can have much better outcomes if they were to join a really good company, a great team, working on a problem that they absolutely love and not have all this, the stressors of being an entrepreneur, for example. So to that extent, at least, I don't think being an entrepreneur is for everyone. I think most people could probably do it. It will just not come as naturally to, to some. That's awesome. You mentioned the word life costs. And one of the things I really like about you or just find interesting is this, uh, you don't really fit in the box either. Like in terms of an accountant, you're, you have a strong accounting background. Uh, you're also a poet. You're a wine connoisseur. You can go into abstract thought. Um, you know, <clears throat> 
for me as an example, like I'm like, I have a big background in social science and anthropology. That's what makes me a good team builder, marketer, et cetera. I'm also like an entrepreneur kind of nerd, but I'm not very numbers oriented like you. So when I look at people, they're often, a lot of people don't fit in the box. They have this unique mix, but how did, can you tell us about how you married the frameworks of accounting into uh, this full stack kind of life profitability framework? Because it's really interesting to me, these two worlds, you push them together that don't always go together. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe as an individual, but definitely as a, um, as an entrepreneur, Chris, I think that I would probably classify my superpower as two different things. Like the one is the persistence, right? I, I think my ability, even on a tough day to show up and put in the reps, right? Um, like that's something that has served me really well over the years. And I, and you know, until someone gives me like a second, no, like I will probably keep pushing in a polite way. Right. So that persistence, like I, I, I think is part of the superpower, but the other one, and it, it gets closer to answering your question is I think I have a, an ability to take, seemingly unrelated things seeming like and connecting seemingly unrelated dots and a big aha for me and that was in the last couple of years as I really upped kind of I would say my reading game right not that it's a, a thing that needs to be improved necessarily right or measured even but I started reading more diverse things right in the past I would mostly read business books for example but then I got into philosophy, right, as an example. Um, and I eventually got into science fiction. I don't even watch science fiction movies, right? It's, it's not something that resonates with me, but I started reading science fiction. And when you see all these things, then you start almost triangulating back to nature, right? And I think that's where I've probably had my biggest aha moment is saying that there's many things that we've seemingly created as a capitalist society and our economies and the way we think about business, that is very unnatural, right? That like, it almost contradicts the way we would see nature itself, right? And the universe, which actually has their universal laws of physics, right? I didn't make them up, right? But the way economy works, the way you know, capitalism works, the way anyone, any business leader proposes you build a business, that's ma- you're kind of human made at least, right? And like, probably not as close to that nature. And I think that's, just recognizing and acknowledging that has been the fun part for me to think through, you know, how then do I take those things in nature and then marry it with concepts that we understand, right? So even the concept of life profitability, I think what is helpful there and for anyone that wants to, if you, like selling a new product, like coining a new term like life profitability, it's hard work, right? I mean, I, I often in the business context, I go back to, I saw a case study, case study report that might've been tweets where HubSpot, um, years before they went public, they spent about $8 million doing one thing, which was to build and kind of educate people around what inbound marketing is. And it was only after that kind of $8 million they spent could they build software for inbound marketers. But they had to kind of hype that up, right? Not hype it up, build it up. Like people needed to understand what is inbound marketing before they're going to pay for that. And I think what is helpful is when you're trying to do something slightly different, something slightly new, See it as a remix instead of reinventing the wheel. So in this context, like life profitability, and for anyone listening, um, the idea of life profitability is to build a business that is not just financially profitable in the narrow sense of the word. So that's the concept that everyone should understand, financial profitability, but instead kind of broaden that out and say, how can I build a business that is truly life profitable in the most diverse, wholesome, kind of broader sense of the word? So that is 
as I said, like that's the the tactic, right? Is kind of remixing a term that people know, but then trying to connect it to these other dots that are there. There are in the universe other ideas, just different modalities, and we don't seem to connect them as often as we should. That's awesome. Well, before I, we go on that, I have to pull on a thread since you brought up two of my favorite ideas, which are pattern recognition and biomimicry or modeling nature. In your, If we zoom way out and we go to the high level and we look down on natural systems, how do we see expressions of life profitability in natural systems, not so much human related, but could you give us a metaphor or like a like, what does profitability look like in nature? Yeah, um, probably symbiosis, right? Um, and again, like I, I, I'm not big on natural sciences. Um, as soon as I, you know, got to high school and I could choose my <laughs> subjects, like those were the things that I dropped, right? And I went, I went the numbers route. But I think you're probably kind of that that symbiosis. And I had a great, oh, we were in safari a couple of weeks ago, um, and the ranger told us this great story about symbiosis. That is that I'm totally losing here. But the way I would think about that is, you know, where a system works in a way that is actually kind of accretive to everyone, and it has this natural sustainability cycle to it. And that's why I would like at the very core, for example, the way I think about business is business should never be a zero-sum game. Business should not be about someone having to lose only for someone else to win. And I think, yes. I understand how debits and credits work, right? Something goes out, something else comes in. And I understand how that works across different entities. But I think when things are truly life profitable, we're ensuring that that symbiosis and that flow, like we're not losing the magnitude of the thing we're exchanging um, or significant parts of significant parts of that value as we're exchanging that thing or as that energy kind of moves. Um, that's how, that's probably the best example. I mean, you, you're probably more of the expert there, but like that's that's my high level understanding of how I would kind of think about how life profitability plays out in nature and then how that could play out in our actual society, in our actual businesses. One co quick comment and then we'll pivot it back into your book. Uh, I love that you brought up sustainability and there's this concept of like regenerative, like beyond sustainable, like maintaining, like how do we make it even stronger outside of the zero sum game? Let's stabilize Let's make it even like Nassim Talib would call anti-fragile, like how they can even benefit from challenges and disorder. So pivoting that back into business, uh, one of my favorite parts of your book, and go check out adi.me, that's A-D-I-I.me, uh, and you'll see more info on the book there. Uh, part of natural systems and whatever, is, it's not like a solo act. There's a team. So how do we, how do we, you know, look at our team with a fresh set of eyes with life profitability uh, as our, um, as like a framework to see it at a deeper level and to get better results and also more enjoyment for ourselves and our team members. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Chris. Um, um, probably because you, you read the book, right? So you know <laughs> this, um, but like that very question was one of the questions that I asked myself um, that I think sparked this conversation within my team um, that eventually led to me kind of discovering some of these ideas and concepts that eventually became life profitability and the book, right? So the backstory for everyone is that when we worked in Convergio, 
we tried to, one of our values was kind of rebellion as well. Um, and we truly went into congested space building marketing software with many kind of incumbents, much bigger than us, long pedigree, et cetera. And we tried to change a bunch of things from pricing to limiting the product so the people could definitely not spam ever kind of thing. And the reason why we did that is we tried to create kinder e-commerce, right? That's what we called it at the time. And what we soon realized was that, firstly, we were literally getting our butts kicked in the ecosystem, right? Like our competitors, people didn't care enough about being kinder. They just cared about building their own businesses. So that didn't work and kind of that messaging didn't work for our growth. And ultimately, the thing we failed at then is we didn't have that impact that we hoped to have, which was inspire more people to adopt this kind of, you know, almost... Um, as a hedge to consumerism. That's what we wanted to kind of hedge against is we didn't want to promote consumerism. And when I sat down and I realized that, and I was like, oh, like, you know, how do we restructure things here so we can still create meme, you know, meaning and be purposeful about what we put out there? And I realized that that old kind of, you know, at edge cliche, um, you know, charity starts at home. And for me, what I realized is how can I, and again, I didn't use those words exactly because I didn't, I hadn't coined the term life profitability, but the idea was, could I restructure my life, my life firstly, in a way that is life profitable, which means restructure my family life, kind of truly kind of, you know, invest in that family life, that home life, be a better leader, be a better entrepreneur. And then from there, ripple outwards and essentially build the kind of business and team to allow my team members to also have kind of a truly kind of life profitable experience, right? I build the business so that they have a better life at home because, and my theory was that if they were able to do that, then they also ripple outwards from there. Right. And I think that's when like, we've all thrown kind of two pebbles into a lake kind of simultaneously and you see the ripples, you know, from those you know, cores rippling out and then they eventually kind of get to a point and they, they kind of bump each other up. Right. And it becomes a bit of an exponential boost. That was that idea that if I start with myself and, then focus on those immediately around me, like we could all start rippling outwards and we can all impact the societies, the communities, the spaces um, in which we are operating and where we actually have influence. So it doesn't have to like impact, then suddenly it doesn't become this either massive thing. Like I have to donate Bill Gates like money, Bill and Melinda Gates like money um, to be, to have an impact, right. Or cure cancer or like whatever the case is, I can actually just, in my everyday interactions, probably start creating impact if the foundation was there to do it. For the team, like if you're working with a remote team, um, what what are some ideas to like help improve their, like what are some tactical things that worked for you? I mean, we all know people want it. We want to help our team make as much money as possible and help them grow professionally, but how else can you improve their life profitability? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, firstly, you know, tactically, probably uh, the fact, you know, pay them well, right? Um, you know, pay, pay them what you can. Um, one of the questions I always like asking people is how, like when, like pre-hiring, right, is like, how much do you need to earn to live the life that you truly want? Because ultimately, if I, like, that might be outside of budget for me, right? But if I can't pay you what you need to live the life that you want, eventually, like, that doesn't work anymore for you, Right. So I think that's that's part of it. That's where it starts. Um, then you and I can probably chat for an hour 
about the fact that I think flexible work, i.e. remote work, is probably a, or definitely helps with that. But then I also think there's like simpler things, Chris. I think, you know, um, encouraging your team not to have Slack on their phone, right? Or at least disabling notifications, right? I.e. like, we're not going to ping you at a random time. Um, encouraging your team to work at times and in a way that they can build that natural flow, right? I think definitely helps. So i.e. when you feel energized to do something, sometimes for me, like I have some family time on a Saturday morning and then I feel like, oh, it's actually quiet at home. I, mm. I feel inspired. I'm going to bash out a couple of emails, right? That's my natural flow. And like, that should be totally fine. And you should, I think you should encourage people to do that. And then on the other side of it, we truly, for, for before we had the term life profitability in, in, in the Converger team, we spoke about being life and family first. And I think one of the simplest ways, for example, that you can do that is if there's an emergency at home or not even an emergency, if you have a kid and they need attention and time, just say, hey team, have a thing at home. I'll be online as soon as I can, right? No, like you don't need to ask permission, no leave request form. Just go do that thing because that thing is definitely 100% more important than whatever you were going to do at work today, right? So like that's, those are some of the kind of more concrete ideas that I, like and examples that I would throw out there of how one can start building that life profitability into to one's team today. Well, let's talk more about the other team, which is the family. And I think the most common thing that I think I can relate to from my past, perhaps you can, perhaps most entrepreneurs can, which is you're at work feeling like you're neglecting your family or you're with your family and you're thinking about work. So you're having issues with being present. What's underneath that and how do we fix that? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, don't have the complete and perfect solution, by the way. Um, can definitely resonate, right? That that's, you know, and and that disconnect, by the way, Chris, is um, is a big part of my personal journey and realizing that that's about six years ago, where where my life literally fell apart, right? And part of what I learned um, was at least inspired or heavily influenced by mindfulness, right? And I think the, you know, today probably the way I try and address it is twofold. I think the first part is constantly staying aware at least about where my attention and mind is and bringing it back to the moment that I'm in. So when I'm playing Legos with my boys and I'm starting thinking about business, either put that business thought aside or quickly get up, write it down and then come back to this moment because that's the thing that's important. So really the awareness of what is most important in this moment and then bringing like not acting like, this you know headless chicken and just kind of allowing your 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 mind to kind of rule that moment. So I think that's the one part thereof. And then the second part thereof is probably you know kind of um, reminding myself on a daily basis that regardless of my ambition, um, my ambition probably f- like influences my perspective on how quickly things need to happen. So or how important things are or how urgent they are. Right. And I think those things are artificial in most cases. Most things aren't that important or that urgent. And I need to constantly remind myself. Like that's a very um like that's an idea that I is massively influenced by the Stoic philosophy, right? Um, of saying, you know what, um just remind like they in a day in a different context, right? The Stoics would think about death, for example, a lot to in a way to ground them. 
So I do something similar where I just like, hey, business is great. Business is fun. Business is challenging. It's not that you know, urgent or important, right? And I just constantly, because I think reminding myself of that, of that on a daily basis resets the barometer a little bit. So when it does suddenly feel like, oh, I can't play Legos right now, that doesn't feel as significant in that moment as it did, for example, five or 10 years ago. Since we're talking about stoicism and death and getting old and family, what uh, let's bring up retirement. And, uh, you know, I think you and probably most people listening to this podcast read the four hour work week and it talked about, um, you know, just the, the tragedy of working really hard to your old and can't enjoy retirement or whatever. Like we need a new frame for retirement. What, how do you see retirement in relation in in like your context? I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, Or not, or never retire. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing I love that I discovered and kind of researching the book um, is the firstly the concept of ikigai, which is Japanese con- kind of a concept. And for anyone, um, I always butcher it, but it has this really lovely diagram where they propose um, like it has four main quadrants, which is things that you're good at, things you love doing, things that you can make money with, um, and things that's good for the world, right? And then they find different overlaps to figure out like you know triangulating what you're doing and where that fits in. And when I got stuck into that, I, I found this anecdote um, and not, I'm not a Japanese you know, cultural expert, right? But this idea in the Japanese kind of your know, culture and society that they kind of, people that are older of age don't necessarily retire. They reduce their workload, but they continue, especially craftsmen, they continue doing the thing that they're doing. And hence life expectancy in Japan is much more. Right? That's one of the reasons, at least that was the kind of what the kind of author proposed here. And what he, the reason he said that because when you continue doing the thing you love, that gives you purpose, right? And I think we've, we've all seen it with, you know, either with kind of you know, parents of ours or, you know, kind of grandparents of ours, like once, like in a couple, like once one of them dies, then the other suddenly dies like a month or two later with no kind of they didn't have any kind of other illness or disease and no forewarning. And I th- like, again, like people say, like they literally die of heartache. Right. I think that's a similar kind of thing. They, they run out of purpose and meaning to actually stick around. And then the body actually just gives up. So with that in mind, like the way I think about it as well is to try build my retirement into my present day, every single day. And what that literally means is to not try sequence things here. Right. Um, to say those things that, I would eventually do when I don't have all these other obligations or balls in the air that I need to juggle. How could I start building some of those things into my, my everyday? And, you know, that might be kind of going on that holiday that I've always wanted to go on. Right. It also can just be like, Hey, I've got the time to be the dad that I actually want to be. And I should spend time with my boys. Right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't kind of in 20 years time when I'm old and I'm not, I'm well, I'm only 36 now, so in 20 years time, I'm not that old, right? But these things shouldn't come in 20 years time, like when I sit down, you know, have a glass of wine with my boys and then have big philosophical kind of conversations when those are the things that I could be doing now as well. So I try and kind of, um, I'm supposed to forecast, you know, um, or forbear, it's probably a better word, but that retirement, I figure out like, how can I bring elements of those into 
my daily life today, which also means that I'm extending that runway at which I would want to be productive in the future. Like I, I'm not going to be necessarily be a founder or entrepreneur in the same way that I am today for another 60 years, right? I would eventually, I would imagine I will develop other interests and I would want to slow it down. But I think there needs to be a better blend instead of trying to, again, like sequence these things and say, for the next you know, 20 years of my life, I am the professional, the entrepreneur, the person hustling. And then after that, I'm going to have money or space or whatever it is. And I'm going to do these other things. I think there needs to be a bigger, you know, kind of a bigger and better blend of those things in the present day as well. That's awesome. And a moment ago, you mentioned uh, rebellion being one of the company values you had. And uh, whether it's a personal values inventory or a company values inventory or setting, and perhaps you're not doing it alone, you're doing it with your team and you're trying to figure it out. I've done this before too with our team. And sometimes these comments come up of like, oh, I don't want some cheesy corporate kind of meaningless thing. Like, how do you, if you look at your life or you look at your business, maybe they're different, maybe they're same. How do we find those real values that matter? Yeah. Um, so I think for a business, at least, the business values will always be a combination um, and a collaboration between the individuals that are involved in the business, right? Um, and for me, the kind of the, the process journey and the process we follow with Convergio and the one that I recommend to, to other entrepreneurs and founders building businesses is to, you, you essentially start with your own values first. Um, because as what a are, What are yours, team, if you don't mind me asking? Like, what are, yeah. are some of them? So I would probably, like the whole spectrum of values, right? So, I mean, I think um, I touched on some of those earlier, right? So for me, my values would need to include things like uh, the ability to do challenging things. Um, I enjoy making things. I need to be able to do that. I have an absolute thirst for learning um, and experiencing new things. So those things I think are all part of my values. Then my family and my home life, like my family is my highest value and my home life is super important. Like without that in place, everything else would be out of whack for me. Right. So like, that's one big investment, one significant investment of, you know, both kind of, you know, time, attention, energy, and money. Right. Um, and then I have like insignificant things, but they, they also kind of balance out the portfolio. Right. So like you called me a, a wine connoisseur, I'm mostly just a wine drinker. Right. But <laughs> like, geek, like geeking out about wine, um, you know, both on the commercial side and the actual art of making wine, like those things are interesting to me. Right. So like things, including things like that, um, you know, including things like, um, oh, what else? Like, like playing FIFA, right? That's the only game that I play. I own a PlayStation just so I can play FIFA, right? <laughs> um, like those things are, are important too. So I think like that's when I think about values at least and constructing that life portfolio of mine, like those are the, the kinds of things that I'm very clear on. They need to be in there and I need to be making due investments in them on with a regular cadence at least. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned, I, I can't remember if it was in your book or on a, podcast that I heard you on or both. Uh, when you wrote the book, Life Profitability, it was important to you for it to be less of a how-to business book and more of a, like a principles book or something. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah. I. The simple answer is I don't believe in how-to books. I don't yeah. believe in um, any author ever proposing here's a 10-step you know, way to accomplish X, Y, or Z um, because I think that lacks context. Um, 
And ultimately what I believe in, Chris, is I believe in the magic of individuals, the unique kind of magic of individuals. And I think, therefore, like, yes, by all means, read the how-to book. Read the kind of your 10-step blueprint to X, Y, Z. Because I think those things are helpful in terms of illuminating options. But then I think it kind of, it the opportunity and responsibility is back to every individual to figure out what does that mean for them. And for life profitability, at least, one thing that I advocate here is that you can only build a truly life, like profitable business and have a kind of a life that is life profitable if you figure out that unique aspect to it, right? Like I can, again, like I can throw ideas out there. I can share frameworks that helps you illuminate parts of that, but the work is up to you, right? And like, I, it's almost the, um, because I want to honor that unique magic in every single individual, like I, I do not dictate what that should mean for, for everyone. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so this audience is full of people creating courses, coaching programs, uh, on, just online training for various reasons. And that, that type of person is also kind of fascinated with like writing a book. Some of them already have. What was your book writing journey like? And, and did it like, was the act of writing the book actually help you figure this whole thing out? Or was it more like I found this thing and I got to share it with the world or both? Yeah. So um, when did the, it start? When did it, how long oh, first, like, what are the bookends here? How long did yes. this process take? <laughs> so thank you through timing here, uh, Chris. I probably wrote um, the first words of the book in late 2017, early 2018, right? And we're um, recording this at the beginning of 2021. So this is yes. three years uh, in the banking or so, right? Exactly. So, yeah. and what effectively happened is I wrote about 40,000 words, right? All scattered, um, thinking that I need to be able to write about 50, 60K words, and that makes a book. And um, I got to that point and I realized that there's something here. I'm truly passionate about it, but... Um, this is not coherent enough. This is not a book yet. So what effectively happened is after Campaign Monitor acquired Convergio, and this happened in August 2019, um, I had a bit of capital to put to work and I had a little bit more time. And, and time in the sense, not of work time, but that mental override time, because I was not the business owner anymore. So I suddenly didn't have certain stressors that I had before. Um, and what I ultimately did is I hired a publishing team to help me with it. And what the, the bulk of from... Um, you know, from when we started in, I think, late October 2019 until the book was production ready about a year later. Um, and we delayed the, the publication by a further two months. So the book was published in, in January of this year. But the bulk of that kind of initial eight or nine months was me working with my editor to, to truly stress test ideas, to kind of collaborate on that. I think what was great about the, the editor I had, Sonia, um, is she brought a lot of a very different person to I like to, to me, right? I think she, um, her background is in classical music, for example, not in business and entrepreneurship. So she and I had that symbiosis where, like, definitely like, we brought different ideas to the melting pot, and that expanded on the ideas that I had, um, and that was a game changer for me. I do not think I could have written the book that I had without having that sparring partner that could truly add some uniqueness to. The, the effort, right? And to also kind of, you know, to pull me forward. I think that's a, like, again, like having someone 
that has done this before with a book, multiple books, having that experience, like that was absolutely critical for me. That's awesome. I also want to honor the other part of the audience here, which is the WordPress professional. What this is probably a really big question, but um, what makes a WordPress community special and what like, you know, what words of wisdom would you impart to somebody who's either using WordPress to build client projects or is working on their own WordPress product? Um, what would you what would you tell them? Yeah, I think. You know, one of the things, and I probably didn't realize it at the time, Chris, um, but one of the things that has shaped me as an entrepreneur greatly is my roots in, in WordPress and in this open source nature, right? And I think when I said earlier that I don't believe that business is a zero-sum game, that is something that I, before I had the words, like years ago, and when I say years ago, this is ancient, right? Because I, I built the first product that eventually became WooThemes. That's how I met Magnus and Mark in November 2007, right? So 13 odd years ago. And before I knew it back then and understood this concept of zero sum, what a zero sum game is, building something within an open source ecosystem changes the game greatly, right? Because you suddenly have very different market forces. You have to focus on different things and prioritize different things. So I think the... In that sense, the WordPress ecosystem um, has been a truly influential part of my life and, and a special part. I think I am a, probably a, a more unique entrepreneur as a result, right? I think for anyone building something in WordPress still, like the one thing I would double down on the open source part of this and not in sense of open sourcing your code necessarily or contributing even to open source, like it's not that necessarily. But what I always got from that is, how do you think about relationships and collaboration effectively? And I think when you can do that and you can start thinking about doing that at scale, that's when you start really, really winning. Because if you think about it, that's what an open source project does, right? It essentially, it's a product that gets built at scale because it opens itself up to have more relationships, to have more contributors. It's not this, hey, we're a small team and we've got opinion and like only this goes, right? So I think finding ways to be more open, right, with regards to those relationships and what you put into those relationships, um, like that's probably at least at a high kind of almost airy fairy, you know, kind of esoteric level, but that's how I would think about it. Um, I still have amazing friends in the WordPress space, some that I've gotten back to recently that have opened significant doors for me, as an example. And I think it's all because those relationships got built back then because none of us were closed. We weren't that protective about things. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's probably, I just double down on that. Like that, that DNA is already there, right? I think if you still, you know, if, if you had Matt Malweg on the podcast today and you asked him something similar, right? You'd find that that DNA is still there, right? Like he was a big influencer and a big founder of that DNA. That's not going away. So you might as well double down on that, build the relationships, figure out what it means to be to be more open as an individual, right? And as a business. Love that. So I was walking my dogs this morning, listening to you on another podcast, uh, just doing my work and ready for the interview. And uh, I heard you drop a quote and I, I didn't write it down. So hopefully you remember it and you can correct me. But it was something like the cost of your life's work is life or something. Do you know this quote? Yeah. 
All right. So, yeah, so it's, go ahead. What is yeah, it? So, 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 so it's Henry Thoreau and he wrote it um, while in his book, Walden also kind of whilst he was staying in a cottage for about three years um, at Walden Pond. And he says, the cost of anything we do in life is just life. So with that in mind, what final words do you have for the good people today? Oh, um, like, I think the thing we neglect, Chris, is the notion that everything we do in life has an opportunity cost, and there's always an alternative. And we're sometimes, you know, sometimes I think we're so focused on just the goal that we neglect to think through what those potential opportunity costs could be. And I think what inevitably happens when we're in this kind of go forward, run forward, optimistic mode, we only think about opportunity cost again in a very narrow sense of the word, which is if I do this thing in my business, if I invest this 10K on this marketing campaign, then sure, I can't hire that person that I need. But I think that the question here that I think we should ask ourselves is what is a much broader definition of potential opportunity costs here? And the biggest potential loss that's that we have is probably in our lives, not in our businesses, right? And I think that's what Henry Thoreau kind of you know, states so beautifully there that the thing we're giving up, like when, when you're sacrificing yourself to your business, like pulling 80 hour weeks, the thing you're giving up for that business is not time, right? It's not money. It's life, right? Like, and that sounds that sounds truly morbid and grandiose and like all those things at once, but that is literally the thing, right? And I think the at least coming back to the Stoics, at least, right, is and thinking through, um, you know, how to, you know, how to die a good death, right? Like, and again, like that's, I I'm not that more you know morbid, and neither am I pessimistic, right? But again, I I, I love that idea because it challenges me to think through you know, once I leave this mortal earth, like what will other people say about me? And I would absolutely, I'd be gutted if people only said like Eddie was an entrepreneur. Like that would simply not be kind of it for me, right? Because that would feel like I sacrificed my whole life to attain some kind of title that at the time society deemed to be respectable, right? And rewarding. But that's not, I don't think that's it, right? As I said, I think that truly dilutes the fact that true life, meaningful life, purpose, all those things happen alongside and outside of business. I don't think much of it happens in business itself. I think that's a way, way too narrow. Um, and as I said, we often give up life in that pursuit. That's A.D. Pinar. You can find him at ad.me that's adii.me the book is called life profitability the new measure of Entre entrepreneurial success ad thanks for coming on the show i really appreciate it thanks for shining your light and uh unpacking all this, this is a great conversation and uh, i can't see wait to see what you do next and you out there listening i hope this had some big unlocks for you in your life and the direction you're he heading in and how you how you roll ad Appreciate it. And we'll catch you down the line. Yeah, totally. Thanks again for having me, Chris. And that's a wrap for this episode of LMS Cast. Did you enjoy that episode? Tell your friends and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. 
And I've got a gift for you over at lifterlms.com forward slash gift. Go to lifterlms.com forward slash gift. Keep learning, keep taking action, and I'll see you in the next episode.